Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in the Olivet Discourse, Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 19 is what we'll be covering today. I'm going to use for our discussion most of my earlier discussion of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, covering verses 9 through 14. The topics include persecution and betrayal of the saints, false prophets that will rise to deceive, if possible, the very elect, lawlessness before the end of the age. Now, I'm going to use my discussion in Matthew 24 to cover most of this passage, but there's some, this is a rare place where Luke actually has more details in the Olivet Discourse than Matthew does. So I'm going to go back at the end of my splice and fill in those details with a direct examination of the passage in Luke. So my splice on Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14, begins now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. I've done eight verses so far in two audios. We're going very slowly through here. This is a complicated and theologically controversial section of Scripture, the Olivet Discourse. We have just finished with the beginnings of birth pangs, as Jesus called them, namely... Famines, false prophets, false messiahs, signs from heaven, plagues, that kind of thing. Earthquakes, I think I might not have mentioned. All of those were the birth pangs leading up to the big event, the delivery of the baby, which is the destruction of the temple and Israel and Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus continues with what will happen. He says in verse 9, then they will hand you over for persecution and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now notice that this prediction of persecution was spoken to disciples who were expecting to rule in a glorious messianic kingdom, and instead they're going to receive persecution. That must have been tough for them to take. It actually happened after Jesus died and went back to heaven after having been risen. Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 7 says this, The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, By what power and what name have you done this? And they flogged them and let them go, if you recall the story. Also, Paul, even later than this, in Acts 18, verse 12, was persecuted by a Roman governor, Gallio, and that was just the beginning, because he was also uh, hailed before other Roman governors, for example, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa at the end of Acts. Acts 18, verse 12 says, While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the judge's bench. I believe that Gallio is the famous brother of Seneca, the famous philosopher and advisor, Stoic philosopher and advisor to Nero. The whole books of Acts is testimony to this persecution that the early disciples dealt with. For example, Acts 16.23, after they had inflicted many blows on them, this is on Paul and Silas on the second journey, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guard. This is the Philippian jail, if I remember, remember correctly. Acts 9.1, meanwhile Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest. This is Saul before he was a Christian, was persecuting Christians, and of course Saul was Jewish. In Acts 14, verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won over the crowds and stoned Paul, this is in Pisidian Antioch is where this happened on the first journey. When these Jews who came from Antioch and Iconium had won over the crowds and stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. All right, so the Jews persecuted. They will hand you over for persecution. That's referring to the Jews. They persecuted the early church Christians and they killed them. Many Christians, in fact, were blamed for war, famine, pestilence, and earthquakes that came around. 
We know this by reading the apologies of the first Christians, according to John Gill. Here's some scripture, again, talking about the persecution that the early church apostles and prophets and evangelists were going to suffer. Mark 13, verses 9 through 11. This is a parallel of the Olivet Discourse. But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to Sanhedrins, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. Every little Jewish town had a council. It was a Sanhedrin. And they carried out their floggings in the synagogues, in a special place in the synagogues. And Jesus predicted this. He also said, you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. That would be governors in the Roman Empire as they spread throughout the Roman Empire. Governors and rulers, kings might be a little bit strong translation there. But rulers, petty little kings, such as King Herod Agrippa I, who only ruled a section of the Holy Land. But anyway, uh, they were going to be dragged before these Roman governors, and the good news must be first proclaimed to all nations. That's all nations in the Roman Empire. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. On the contrary, whatever is given to you in that hour, say it, for it it isn't you speaking but the Holy Spirit. And in the Luke version of the Olivet Discourse, Luke chapter 21, verse 12, But before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Basically the same thing. Now, Jesus had predicted this before Tuesday evening. Tuesday evening is when the Olivet Discourse is taking place in this chapter, chapter 24. But in the previous chapter, chapter 23, we see Jesus in Jerusalem before he left Jerusalem for the last time. And he told the Pharisees, that's why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and hound from town to town. So not only did he predict this to his disciples in the Olivet Discourse, he predicted it to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here's Acts 8 verse 1, Saul agreed with putting him to death, that's Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7. Saul agreed with that that murder. On that day a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So the early church, which was Jewish, had to had to leave town because the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, persecuted them, just like Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church. This is Herod Agrippa. I always get these Herods mixed up. This is Herod Agrippa I, if I recall correctly. Cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, John's brother, with a sword. That's persecution. That's kill, just like Jesus predicted. When he saw that it pleased the Jews... He proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the days of unleavened bread. Now, fortunately, he didn't kill Peter, but he arrested him. And you notice that it pleased the Jews, so the Jews were completely behind this persecution in Acts chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 26. Five times, Paul says, I received 39 lashes from Jews. His fellow Jews whipped him 39 lashes. And by the way, that sounds kind of antiseptic when you read it, but that was a horrible, horrible scourging to receive. Three times I was beaten with rods, that's by the Romans. Once I was stoned by his enemies, doesn't say which ones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and day in the open sea on frequent journeys. I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people. In other words, from the Jews. They persecuted him constantly. And then he also, Paul goes on to say, he suffered dangers from the Gentiles. Now, you'll see here the unholy alliance between the Jews and the Gentiles. This is a major theme in the book of Revelation on the preterist view of the book of Revelation, which is that these two persecuting powers were represented by two beasts. The land beast was apostate Israel, and the sea beast was the pagan Roman Empire. All right, so 
this is very easy to see that the early Christians were persecuted just like Jesus predicted, persecuted and killed. Jesus says in the last part of verse 9 in Matthew 24, you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now let's talk about that a little bit. Well, before I do that, let's go back to talk about this idea of killing. You will be killed. We've already talked about you, you will be persecuted. And I mentioned some killing. But let's just collect the examples of the murders of the early Christians. For example, all the apostles except John were killed, were murdered. They were all killed before the destruction of Jerusalem. John was exiled. He was the one that was not killed, but he was exiled to an, a, a Greek island, Patmos. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed in Acts chapter 7, verses 58 through 59, which reads this way. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So there Stephen is killed with the approval of Saul, who later became Paul the Apostle. I already mentioned and quoted this verse to you in Acts 12, verse 2. James, the brother of John, James and John, the son of Zebedee, James was killed with the Jews' approval. And then, of course, we have Nero's notorious and bloody persecutions of Christians. Christians were, that gave the name to Roman candles because Christians were wrapped in animal skins, which were rubbed with oil, and the animal skins were burnt with the Christians inside. This is in order to light up Nero's garden party. So everything that Jesus predicted came to pass between the period of 80, 30, and 70. This does not need to be fulfilled at the end of the world. Now it says all nations, you will be hated by all nations. Well, nations means Gentiles. And the Gentiles were governed by the Roman Empire at that time. So that basically means all of the Gentiles in the Roman Empire hated the Christians. And oftentimes they were stirred up by the Jews to attack the Christians. For example, in the book of Acts, Acts 13, verse 50. But the Jews, this is on the first journey. I forgot the town, unfortunately. But the Jews incited the prominent women who worshiped God and the leading men of the city. The Jews incited the prominent men who worshiped God and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. Acts chapter 14, verse 2. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. That was at Pisidian Antioch on the first journey. And also at Pisidian Antioch in Acts 14, 5 when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to assault and stone them. So you see the Gentiles and Jews working together, just like in the book of Revelation, the land beast and the sea beast. Now sometimes the future subject to this persecution by all nations, you will be hated by all nations, and they say, see, that, can, that has got to be referred to a worldwide persecution of the church at the end of time, because all nations cannot refer to just the Roman Empire. Well, the short answer to that is the Roman Empire was a polyglot empire that was composed of many nations. So when you're opposed by the Roman Empire, you're opposed by all nations. So that is not a legitimate futurist objection. Now, know what a remarkable prediction this was, that the church was to be hated by all nations. This is a carpenter, Jesus, with 12 disciples. In a few days, he's going to be crucified as an enemy of the Roman state, and pretty soon he himself would make enemies of all nations. What an incredible prediction. And you will be hated because of my name, Jesus said. Nero would execute someone who just called himself a Christian, even if he hadn't done anything. No further act was necessary to bring guilt. You're a Christian, bam, you're, you're toast. You're dead. Here's a quote from Tertullian, cited by Adam Clark. Quote, it was, as says Tertullian, nominus prelium, prelium, nominus prelium, a war against the very name of Christ. For he who was called Christian had committed crime enough in bearing the name to be put to death. So true were our Savior's words that they should be hated of all men for his name's sake. 
Now, Jesus had already told them they were going to be hated by everyone because of his name. Just by, just by naming the name of Christian, you're going to be hated. Matthew 10, verse 22, when Jesus sent out the 12 apostles on their first missionary journey, Jesus told them, you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. That's probably there, the end of their life, maybe, or the end of the Jewish age, I'm not sure. But the point is, is you will be hated by everyone. This is tough medicine for people who were expecting to inherit a messianic kingdom. Matthew 24, verse 10, moving on. Then many will take offense, betray one another, and hate one another. Here's a sentence out of Tacitus that's often quoted. This is the famous Roman historian. Speaking of Nero's persecution, he says this, quote, At first, several were seized who confessed, and then by their discovery, a great multitude of others were convicted and executed. So you had some Christians turning their fellow Christians in to the government so that they could be tortured and killed and executed. Here's some scriptural examples of betrayal and apostasy. 2 Timothy 1.15, This you know, all those in Asia have turned away from me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. It's a terrible thing to be betrayed and abandoned as a Christian. Terrible thing. It happened to Paul several times, as we see. Matthew 24, verse 11. We're still talking about the birth pangs, the beginning of tribulations, which is not the final destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but which, are, which consists of events leading up to that destruction. Verse 11 says this, Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Now let's give some examples of these false prophets. For example, Simon Magus mentioned in Acts 8, he became worshipped as God in Samaria. It was a statue found to him dedicated to God. It was found in the Tiber River, so he made a name for himself all over the Roman Empire. He was a false prophet. The guy, some guy named Ebion, quoted by Gill, I don't know him. Serenthus, I'm not, I don't know who he is too, but he's quoted by John Gill as a false prophet. As, and Gill also quotes Carpocrates, I don't know him either. The Nicolaitans is mentioned by John, the Apostle John in, in his letters, in one of his letters, I think it's his first John. Hymenaeus is mentioned by Paul as he's writing to Timothy, the hyperpreterist guy who believed that the resurrection had already come, and Philetus was mentioned also. He was also a hyperpreterist. So there's plenty of false prophets risen up that, so that Jesus can be said to have fulfilled this, have made an accurate prediction here in the Olivet Discourse. Now let's look at some scriptures, many of which are unfortunately taken to refer to the end of the world, which were actually referring to the present day, that current generation that Jesus was in. 2 Corinthians 11:13 For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. These those were false apostles in Corinth. 2 Timothy 2:17 and 18 And their word was spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have deviated from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are overturning the faith of some. As I said, those are the hyperpreterists that Paul denounces. Second Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their unrestrained ways, and the way of truth will be blasphemed because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with deceptive words. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. That's a very damning passage of Scripture pointing out the, the horrible extent and depth of corruption 
evidenced by these false prophets among the Christians. There was a big problem. Now, we've always had false prophets, but remember, this is going. all these false prophets are before that generation will pass away. Matthew 24, verse 34, so we know that it's referring to prophecy, the false prophets back then that the early church had to deal with. Acts 13, verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, that's the island of Crete, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Acts 20, verses 29 through 30, I know that after my departure, Jesus, Paul's talking about after his death, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And men will rise up from your own number with deviant doctrines to lure the disciples into following them. That's the history of the apostasy, the so-called great apostasy, which, my friends, is not at the end of the world, but it's at the end of that period, of that generation between eighty thirty and eighty seventy, when the church actually did look like it was about to die out. Looks like the Jews were about to stamp it out. And unfortunately, the Roman, well, unfortunately for them, the Romans came and stomped them out. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, and that's the end of the Jewish rabbinic order, last days, later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, 2 John 1.7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. I've often marveled at how Christianity can spread with all the lies and all the people that are twisting Jesus' words and all the deception, and all the BS, not to mention the prosperity preachers who give the gospel a bad name, and on and on and on. It's just amazing to me, with all the lying spirits that are out there, that Jesus manages to get his flock saved, because he's going to get them. That's why I'm a Calvinist, because I don't believe that human beings in their flesh can do much good, and I don't, certainly don't believe they can come to Jesus. They're going to they're follow every deceiver and antichrist they find or every get-rich-quick scheme they can find before they're going to follow the Spirit of Christ. So that means the Spirit's got to draw them. 1 John 4, 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And again, that's have gone out into the world. That's the past, 1 John 4, 1. Moving on to verse 12 in Matthew 24, Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. Now, growing cold, that could refer to two different things. One, it could refer to people who renounce Christ completely, or it could pe mean people who will love Christ but not as much as before. I'm not sure which that is. Adam Clark makes an interesting distinction here. He says, in verse 10, Jesus warned against false prophets, those who betray you. Excuse me, uh, warned against those who betray you in verse 10, so those would be deserters. And in verse 11, he warned against false prophets, those were corruptors of the truth. And then in verse 12, he warns against those who just become merely indifferent. Hebrews 10.25 backs that up, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I do not believe that's referring to people who don't go to church enough. I'm, it's talking about people who have apostatized, who've gone back to Judaism, who've just left, staying away from our worship meetings permanently, which again would fulfill Jesus' prediction in the Olivet Discourse. Lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. Now, what about this idea of lawlessness? Even today, Orthodox Jewish scholars blame 8070 on Jewish lawlessness, according to D.D. Warren. Here's some quotations. Here's one from Josephus from the Jewish Wars. Quote, In the first place, all the people of every place betook themselves to rapine, after which they got together in bodies in order to rob the people of the country, insomuch that for barbarity and iniquity, those of the same nation did in no way differ from the Romans. 
Nay, it seemed to be a much lighter thing to be ruined by the Romans than by themselves. <laughs> All law and order broke down, and the Jews were going around pillaging everybody. Just like Jesus said, lawless will, lawlessness will increase. Here's another quote from Josephus' Jewish Wars. Quote, the Idumeans also strove with these men who should be guilty of the greatest madness. For they all, vile wretches as they were, cut the throats of the high priest, that so no part of religious regard to God might be preserved. They thence proceeded to destroy utterly the last remains of a political government, and introduced the most complete scene of iniquity in all instances that were practicable, under which scene that sort of people that were called zealots grew up, and who indeed corresponded to that name, for they imitated every wicked word. Quite florid and picturesque description of the lawlessness of the Jews. Here's, some here's a quote from the Roman historian Tacitus to talk about the lawlessness of the Romans. Quote, sacred rites were grossly profaned, and there was adultery among the great. The sea swarmed with exiles, and the cliffs were red with blood. Worse horrors reigned in the city. To be rich or well-born, to hold offices or refuse it, was a crime. Merit of any kind meant certain ruin. Nor were the informers more hated for their crimes than for their prizes. Some carried off a priesthood or the consulship as their spoil. Others won administrative office and a place at the heart of power. The hatred and fear they inspired worked universal havoc. Slaves were bribed against their masters, freedmen against their patrons, and if a man had no enemies, he was ruined by his friends. That's how things were in the Roman Empire about this time. So you see, lawlessness did increase. And, of course, the lawlessness of the emperors Nero and Caligula, both of, uh, both of whom are in this 8030-8070 period that Jesus is talking about, their lawlessness was legendary. If you read Roman history, of course, you're always talking about Nero and Caligula. Caligula was crazy. He appointed his horse as a consul. <laughs> Matthew 24, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. And that means the end of the Jewish rabbinic order, the apostate Judaistic kingdom, the apostate rabbinic kingdom. It's not talking about the end of the world. To show you how that can, how the end does not necessarily have to be the end of the world. And here it does not mean the end of the world because of context. But let's look at 1 Corinthians 10:11. Now these things happened to them as examples. And they were written, it's talking about the things of the Old Testament. These things happened to Old Testament people as examples, and they were written as a warning to us, us Christians, on whom the ends of the ages have come. Well, if us Christians have the ends of the age, this is Paul writing back in the first century A.D. He was not talking about the end of the world 2,000 years later, the ends of the ages. The word ages there is, is plural, but it's the same idea as the end of the age, end of the rabbinic order. Hebrews 9.26 Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world, but now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages. When did Jesus appear? At the end of the age, at the end of the Jewish age, because he started the Messianic age, not at the end of the world, but at his death, resurrection, and shedding of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And remember the context, as I mentioned in part A of this Matthew 24, of the three questions the disciples asked Jesus on the Mount of Olives, not one thing that they asked Jesus had to do with the end of the world. Not one thing. They were pointing to the temple and saying, what, what is it about this temple? Not the end of the world. They couldn't even conceive of the end of the world. They couldn't conceive that Jesus would die. They couldn't conceive that he would rise again, much less that he was going to come back at the end of the world. They were expecting a messianic kingdom shortly. The one who endures to the end will be delivered. Delivered from what? Could it be eternal spiritual salvation, deliverance from hell? No. The context is talking about the physical destruction raining down on Jerusalem. Now, it could mean deliverance from the judgment on Jerusalem, 
which is what I believe it will. It is because of this great story here. The believing Christians in Jerusalem were trapped there at the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans at the very beginning. And the Roman general who was sent there to besiege Rome, he had them all pinned up, ready for the slaughter. And then all of a sudden, his name was Cestius Gallus, Gallius, Cestius Gallus, Cestius withdrew unexpectedly and inexplicably. And the zealots inside the city were so excited, they chased him. In fact, they beat him, actually, in a battle north of Jerusalem. But while they were fighting Cestius, the Christians in Rome, having remembered Jesus' prediction about when you see the army surround Jerusalem flee, they fled, and they went to Pella, which was a little bit north and west across the Jordan River, and they waited out the Jewish war in perfect safety. Not one Christian died, according to Eusebius of Caesarea. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. He's quoting Eusebius. Quote, it is very, remar very remarkable that not a single Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem, though there were many there when Cestius Gallus invested the city, and had he persevered in the siege, he would soon have rendered himself master of it. But when he unexpectedly and unaccountably raised the siege, the Christians took that opportunity to escape. Now, nobody knows to this day why Cestius left. I've seen some speculations about it, but nobody really knows. But Jesus predicted it and saved the Christians in Jerusalem. So I think that's what it means, delivered. Who endures to the end, the end of the war will be delivered. Now, D.D. D. Warren has another option. One who endures to the end will be delivered from the apostasy because of the severity of the tribulation. The one who endures to the end of the apostasy will be saved. Well, could be. But I really think it's most, mainly the deliverance from Jerusalem. I don't know. She could be right about that. It could be just in general. If you endure all the persecution of the Jews and the Romans, you'll make it to the end of the Jewish order, and it'll all be over, and then the kingdom of God will really start to be spread all over the world. Matthew 24, verse 14. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Again, the end of the Jewish order, not the end of the world. Now, this does sound like the end of the world, doesn't it? Because the gospel will be claimed in all the world. Well, let's look at this word world. It doesn't mean the whole globe as futurists take it. It means the Roman Empire. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. In all the world, in holy te oikumene, in the whole world, perhaps no more is meant here than the Roman Empire. For it is beyond controversy that pasantain oikumenein, Luke 2.1, means no more than the whole Roman Empire as a decree for taxation or enrollment from Augustus Caesar could have no influence but in the Roman dominions. I'm going to quote Luke 2 in a little bit to show you that world there means the whole Roman Empire. It doesn't mean the whole globe. Now, Adam Clark makes the point that, yes, it refers to the Roman Empire, but it also could include some other areas in the ancient past, which is kind of interesting. And John Gill backs that up by giving, let me read you this quote here that back, backs Clark up. We are under no necessity to restrain the phrase to the Roman Empire as previously to the destruction of Jerusalem. The gospel was not only preached in Asia Minor, Lesser Asia, Asia Minor, and Greece and Italy, the greatest theaters of action in the world, that would be the Roman Empire, but was likewise propagated as far north as Scythia, which is, say, between the Black and the Caspian Sea, southern Russia, that's outside the Roman Empire, as far south as Ethiopia, outside the Roman Empire, as far east as Parthia, that's going over toward Persia and India, Gill says that's outside the Roman Empire, and as far west as Spain and Britain, well, that was inside the Roman Empire, but all these other places a little bit beyond. So the gospel was went a long way. It's not, not, it didn't go to China. It didn't go to America. It didn't go to South America because those areas weren't discovered yet, but it was all in the whole known world. It went everywhere. Here's a quote from Philip Doddridge in a book he wrote called The Family Expositor. Here 
are the following areas which were evangelized in the 30 years after the death of Christ. That's in this period here we're talking about between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70. Jude, this is from church tradition, and of course that tradition can always be questioned, but let me just read it to you. Jude traditionally went to Edomia, Syria, and Mesopotamia. Mark, Simon, and Jude uh, traditionally went to Egypt, Marmorica, Mauritania, and other parts of Africa. Candace's eunuch, who's mentioned in, the, in Acts 8, I think it is, and Matthias uh, went to Ethiopia. Peter went to Pontus, which is in central Anatolia, Galatia, north-central Anatolia. Galatia is in the middle of Anatolia, current Turkey, and neighboring parts of Asia. John, of course, the seven famous churches of Revelation. He was, and also Ephesus, he was known for around there. Matthew went to Parthia, Philip, and Andrew to Scythia, which is southern Russia. Bartholomew went to the northern and western parts of Asia. I'm not sure what that means, unless it's what we call today Central Asia. I'm not sure. Simon and Jude went to Persia. Thomas supposedly went to Media, Carmania, and several eastern parts. Media is northern part of Iran, Persia. Carmania, I forgot where that is, but that's somewhere in Persia. And then, and all, how about India? He's famous for going to India. And Paul, of course, went from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is on the Danube River there in the Roman Empire. Hungary, around there, Hungary. Uh, he went to Italy, probably went to Spain, probably went to Gaul and Britain. So anyway, yeah, the gospel went everywhere. And here's some scriptures to show that this preaching of the gospel to the whole world was fulfilled before AD 70. First, Colossians 1.6. The gospel has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. That's not talking about China and America, folks. This is Paul wrote this in the first century. It's growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace and the truth, Colossians 1.23. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. All creation? Woo, sounds like it's the whole world. Romans 10.18, but I asked, did they not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the inhabited world. So you see, the gospel itself, the scriptures themselves, fulfilled Jesus' words. The gospel went out to the whole world. We don't have to wait to the end of the end of the planet Earth at the second coming to see that this prediction of Jesus was fulfilled. The gospel went out to the whole world. Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being repa- reported in all the world. Romans 1, 5-6, We have received grace and apostleship through him to bring about the obedience of faith among all. All the nations, Romans 16, verse 25 through 26. But to him who has power to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures among all nations. And notice how revealed and made known is in the past tense. This kingdom was revealed and made known in the past, not at the end of the world. Among all nations. I told you I'd quote Luke 2.1 to show that world does not necessarily mean the whole globe, the whole planet. In fact, never does, actually. I, I hate to say never because you're, you're never supposed to say never. But I, I can't think of when it would ever mean to the whole world because back then they didn't know what the whole world was. It was the Roman Empire. Luke 2.1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire. Well, the whole empire is how the Holman Christian Study Bible translates okoimene, which is world. So they did a little tra- translation that really brings the point home. The whole empire, not the whole planet, but the whole empire should be registered. So that word, or komene, which is often the Greek word that's translated world, 
is the Roman Empire. Obviously, Caesar's not going to register people outside the empire. All right, so let's get over the idea that the gospel's going to have to go out all over the world and Jesus will come back. I can't tell you how many times I heard that growing up. I do believe the gospel's going to go to every corner of the world, every little weird minority group in the backside of China. There's evangelists out there. I've met them. They're out there preaching the gospel to people you would never hear about in the news or you just don't know about. They are, they are professional missionaries, and sometimes they're just high school kids. I met a high school, a guy that didn't even have a college degree. He's out there in the backside of China going around spreading the word of God. I saw another video of a guy that went out to one of these minority groups out in Yunnan province out in the west of China. He just had a, a backpack and... I don't. I forgot how he was doing it, but he made a great video. There's people doing this. We don't hear about them. Too busy trying to get rich, trying to watch Kenneth Copeland, trying to get us our $16 million mansion instead of spreading the gospel. All right, now here's some scriptures that show that all nations cannot be pressed to mean every single nation on earth like the futurists love to do. Here's some scriptures that show this, Ezra 1-2. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, Cyrus didn't have all the kings of the earth. That was just an exaggeration. Psalms 1-18-10. All the nations surround me, David said. In the name of Yahweh, I destroyed them. He didn't mean every nation in the world. It means all the nations that were around him. First Chronicles 14:17. Then David's fame spread throughout the lands, and the Lord caused all the nations to be terrified of him. Well, that means all the nations that knew about him, because all the nations didn't know about him. So all the nations can't mean every single possible nation. Second Chronicles 32:23. Many were bringing an offering to the Lord to Jerusalem and valuable gifts to King Hezekiah of Judah, and he was exalted in the eyes of all the nations. After that, no, only those that were bringing gifts to him and knew about him. Jeremiah 27, 7. All nations will serve him, his son and his grandson, until the time for his own land comes, and then many nations and great kings will enslave him. That's talking about one of the kings of Israel. I forgot to look up the context there, but the point is that, that not all nations are going to serve one Jewish king. It means many nations are going to serve him, but not all. Daniel 4.1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on all the earth, may your prosperity increase. Jews and ancient kings often spoke hyperbolically about all nations. It just means many nations. Genesis 41.57, every nation came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain. Every nation in the world? I don't think so. It means a lot of them. 1 Kings 10.24, the whole world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. The whole world? Nah, it's talking about the little kinglets and queenlets the little kingdoms down there in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and maybe some other places in the ancient Near East. Now, I looked up this word all, all as in all nations, in Thayer's lexicon. Thayer gives two definitions. One, pos, individually, means each and every, if it's, if it's in the singular number, means each and every, any, all, the whole, everyone, all things, everything. That's a strong use of the word all. All nations would mean literally every single nation on earth. But it also has another definition, which is collectively all. It means some of all types. Some of all types doesn't mean each, doesn't mean all exhaustively, but it means all categorically. Here's Thayer's comment on Poss. Here's some comments. He quotes some scripture. He says, the whole world has gone after him. Did all the world go after Christ? No, of course not. It just means a lot of the world. Then went all Judea and were baptized him of Jordan. Was all Judea or all Jerusalem baptized in the Jordan River? Thayer asked, well, of course not. It just means a lot of people. Another quote, ye are of God, little children, and the whole world lies in the wicked one. Does the whole world mean everybody in the world is in the grasp of the devil? How about the Christians? 
They're not in the grasp of the wicked one. Here's a final quote from Thayer. The words world and all are used in some seven or eight senses in Scripture, and it is very rarely the all means all persons taken individually, or in our case, all nations taken individually. The words are generally used to signify that Christ has redeemed some of all sorts. In other words, some categorically, some Jews, some Gentiles, some rich, some poor. So all nations means basically all of every type of nation in the world is going to, follow, is going to hate Christians. Now, it's a good thing the gospel went out all over the world because the gospel would have died if it had been stuck in Jerusalem. Some would have, uh, it would have died when Jerusalem fell in 8070, but the Christians got out and went to Pella, and after that, the gospel spread like wildfire all over the Roman Empire. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back from my splice of Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14. Now I'm going to take up the discussion of a few details in the Luke passage, the parallel passage in Luke, which Matthew did not cover. All right, the first difference, or elaboration, I should say, of Luke over the Matthew passage is... When we, we can see this when we compare Matthew 24, 9, which says, Then shall they deliver you up to tribulation, and shall kill you, and shall be hated of all of the nations for my nation's sake. Whereas Luke goes into more detail. He says, Yes, they shall persecute you, but they will deliver you up to synagogues and prison. That's the first difference, is that synagogues is mentioned as the place where they're going to be put in jail. Now, a synagogue... You would think, why are, you going, why are you going to be delivered up to a synagogue? Well, the NIV Study Bible says that the synagogue was used for community administration and confinement of prisoners awaiting trial. Now, so this is what happens in the Jewish times before 8070, not at the end of the world. We're going to be delivered up to synagogues at the end of the world? I don't think so. So that's the first difference. And then Matthew just says people are going to kill you and you should be hated. But Luke says... This is who's going to turn you in. You will be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will kill some of you. Bad detail that Matthew leaves out. They will kill some of you. That doesn't mean they will kill all of you. Some of, of course, the church didn't make it. They would be killed. But notice, right after Jesus says they will kill you, some of you in verse 16, Luke 21, he says in verse 17, not a hair of your head will be lost. Well, what does this prove? This proves that the resurrection of the dead, because if not a hair of your head would be lost, even though some of you will be killed, those who would be killed are not going to lose your hair because you're going to be resurrected. And then he says, by your endurance, gain your lives. And that means gain your lives either in this world or the next. I'm not, I don't think Jesus was making a distinction, but the point is, is that your endurance is going to pay off. You're going to live even though things are going to be very, very difficult in this run-up to AD 70 because of the persecuting rabbinic authorities. There's another detail here that Luke mentions that when you are delivered up, as Matthew puts it, Luke puts it, you will be delivered up and before these tribunals, these synagogues, and into these prisons, and before these courts, Jesus says, I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be brought before kings and governors, and these ignorant fishermen are going to be talking about Jesus before kings and govern governors, and the big shots won't be able to contradict what they are saying. Now, John Gill points out that this was remarkably fulfilled in Peter, John, and Stephen. In Acts 4.13, we read this. When they, 
observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Well, there's your first example of the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy on the Olivet Discourse. And this business about being betrayed by your friends and your family, Jesus had predicted this before in Matthew 10, verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will even rise up against their parents and have them put to death. Now, when Jesus says they will even kill some of you, as a matter of fact, Jesus is speaking to the apostles now. All of the apostles except John were killed before AD 70. All of them. So when he said some, he meant a great majority of them, all but one. When Jesus said, by your endurance you shall preserve your life, you shall gain your lives, well, remember the escape to Pella, Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, withdraws his abomination, which was causing desolation. The Christians inside saw it. They said, we're free. The persecuting zealot Jews inside the city of Jerusalem go chase Cestius Gallus, leaving the city undefended and unblockaded. And so the Christians all came out and went to Pella, and they lived. So Jesus, once again, predicted accurately. Now I'm going to mention something that I have trouble dealing with. Jesus says, look, you're going to get arrested. Make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. As an ex-lawyer, I think, my gosh, you know, a lawyer that's unprepared is going to lose his case. And Jesus here says he's going to make up for that lack of preparation with words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. What does that say about people who go in to teach a Bible lesson and they haven't prepared it? I don't think this is a sanction for such irresponsible behavior, in my humble opinion. I've heard so many people say that I just let the Holy Spirit lead me, and then they wander all over the place, put me to sleep. My spine is hurting. My legs are tingling because the blood circulation has been cut off. I'm about to, my head is bobbling all over the place. My head is jerking as I fall asleep and wake up and fall asleep and wake up. And they're still wandering around all over the place, and they don't teach me a darn thing about the Scripture. So I think this verse has been misused. If it indeed has been used as a sanction for that kind of activity, I hope not. But at any rate, I would imagine the apostles who were caught and prosecuted in this situation would not have legal counsel. They would not have a lot of time to prepare the defense ahead of time. They would just have to speak after they got caught. And so because of that, because of the exigencies of the circumstances, they were forced to rely on the Holy Spirit to give them language that they needed in their time of need. I have one last thought about this subject. It could be that these apostles, they're not trained lawyers, they're not trained artors, they're fishermen, and if they had gotten, sat in their cells and tried to figure out how they're going to beat all these fancy Jewish lawyers and Sanhedrin members or whoever it was that was going to be trying them, they would have gotten bogged down and they would have gotten beaten. But if they just went in there fresh their minds clear, full of the gospel of Christ, and Jesus had let them lead them by the Holy Spirit, then they're going to do a much better job than if they'd tried to be their own lawyer. Because you know the old saying, the man who has a lawyer for himself has a fool for a client. I think that probably explains this somewhat enigmatic command of Jesus. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have finished my discussion of Luke 21, verses 12 through 19. We finished up with the persecution of the Christians leading up to, in that period, leading up to 8070 and the end of the Jewish age. In our next audio, we'll take up the abomination of desolation and the great escape to Pella. I hope, you, I hope you'll listen to that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.